you're at alternative biomedical solutions. Yep. So that's a mouthful. Yep. But um, so y'all do a lot of lab analysis of different things. You have you have your analysis for like drug courts and the equipment, the machining that you could put into place, and then you can also actually do the validation for those drug courts. Yep. You're also into this thing called PFOS, yep. which is you do need a doctor to be able to pronounce what that is. Right. You yeah. want to go ahead and uh, say it? Uh, perfluoral. Perfluoral. The A, uh, alcohol. And I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce the last bit of it. So uh, yeah. Yeah. anyway, PFOS. PFOS, yeah. I, I worked on it a couple times and it just, I'm like, okay, this, I might have to write this one down. But yeah. PFOS. Yep. And then you have cannabis. So let's um, maybe jump in the, you know, one of them people really like yep. cannabis. PFOS is something that gets a lot of news attention, but it's also one of those things that when you get news attention, it's like 10 seconds at a time. So right. I want to talk to you about both of those things. Yep. Um, we could do the drug courts in your analysis, that, that stuff's really interesting and you get in a lot of facts and figures of right. how many drug courts there are in the U.S. And, right. and there's some overlap there with what you do from a cannabis perspective, or at least there's an adjacency, but um, the, I don't know, should we go scary or the one that people Really Let's like. do the, the people, the one that people like first. Cannabis. Okay, cannabis. Yep. Let's go. Cannabis starting them, has been legalized in a bunch of states. Yeah. Not federally, though. Um, no, still Schedule 1. Uh, so it, it leads to really interesting challenges for the industry as a whole. And really cottage industries popping up to support the challenges, which is also quite interesting uh, at the end of the day. And the plant itself, from a scientific standpoint, is also just fascinating. From the sure. cultivation to the products, you know, the, the myriad of products now that legalization is somewhat picking up steam. Uh, you know, back in the day, it was your your college dorm mate, you know, cooking it, you know, in a, a baking some brownies. And now mm -hmm. you've got gummies, you've got you know tinctures, you've got patches, you've got everything imaginable way of ingesting this product. So it's very fascinating how this molecule, ultimately we're, when we talk cannabis, we're talking THC, that's what people are after, or CBD for the folks that are a lot more about some of the purported uh, medicinal effects being sure. uh, implemented into uh, consumer products as a whole. And uh, so everything from the cultivation, the growing, to production, to distribution, is very fascinating and where uh, ABS really comes into is really as part of the, the testing part of it and that's because it's a very challenging product to test as well. So why do you have to test? I mean we've had cannabis forever. Right. It got bastardized and made illegal yep. in the last century. Yep. Um, demonized probably is a better word for it. Yeah. And then now it's Somewhat legalized, yep. depending on where you're at and who you're talking to. Right. Yep. Federal Schedule One. Yep. So that causes pro problems in the banking industry yep. and challenges for the people that are growing it. But growing it is not something that's new. Right. Exactly. But when you put, when you legalize something, you wrap regulation yep. and legislation around that. Yeah. So what is it that we're actually looking to measure when you do lab testing and and maybe go into you know, kind of even an overview on lab testing because that cuts across everything you guys Yeah, do. it's a whole host. So even before we get into cannabis, if you think about, you know, the coffee you're drinking right now, uh, the water, the bottles of water we have, or just the food we eat in the morning, they have to go through testing because you, uh, they're in an industrialized world when we're talking agriculture and consumer goods, there's so much going into the products to make sure that they can be produced at scale. Uh, that you really need to ensure that the products are safe for human consumption. So it's one thing if, let's say, you know, you own a ranch in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, and you know it's clear water creeks from the glacier flowing down there, and you're growing stuff there. That's that you know you probably don't have anything to worry about. But when we're talking about industrialized farms, some of the processes that go into it are pretty nasty. So we're talking things like pesticides, herbicides, mm -hmm. uh, fertilizers. Um, 
And cannabis is unique in the sense that it's a it's it's a weed. We call it weed for a reason. It, it is yeah. ultimately a weed. And if you think about the weed on your lawn, for instance, you know, for folks living in suburbia. And I remember growing up when my parents owned their homes and stuff. My dad was always complaining about the weeds because they no matter how hard you try, they're gonna grow. Mm-hmm. And it's the challenge of can't. And part of the reason these types of plants grow really well is that they they can suck up a lot of nutrients around. And they're very able to take part of the environment. So they're adaptable. And what that leads to is if you're trying to cultivate it a lot, so if you think about things that like pesticides, getting rid of pests, the fertilizers, uh, the herbicides, and so forth, uh, it can really, the, the, the cannabis plant will actually soak up a lot of that and will take will have a lot of it on the product, more so than a lot of other type of crops. Uh, additionally, the plant uh, cannabis plant itself is unique in that it also uptakes quite a bit of heavy metals. So you think arsenic, lead, and so forth. Uh, there are certain crops that don't really take it up at all. So like if you think corn, wheat, those type of crops, they aren't as amenable to uptaking certain con- environmental contaminants. Other crops like rice. How does, how does a weed or a plant absorb arsenic or lead through its roots uh, you know whatever's in every bit of soil that we're sitting on you know there, there, there's there's heavy metals in it there's very minute amounts of it and the the challenge with agriculture is ultimately you start plants start absorbing um, as you're growing they start absorbing and then if we talk further down the food chain um, animals eat the plant and then they start absor- absorbing and accumulating and at the top of the food chain is humans. So if we go through each individual steps, what it leads to a lot of times is quite a bit of accumulation of these uh, pollutants and contaminants. Is that something that's relatively new with modern agriculture and big agriculture, or would you have found the same thing 200 years ago? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it, it definitely. So in terms of if you think about the the chemicals that are used let's just use pesticides for instance 200 years ago uh you know the the types of pesticides are what you would probably call quote-unquote organic so there's evidence of cultures using for instance mint oil that's extracted to spray on the crops because that's been shown to repel certain types of pests and they will use these types of methods to try to control uh whether it's bugs or 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 birds and so forth that to, from damaging their crops uh, nowadays, you know, well, mint oil is kind of expensive if you think about, okay, now you need to grow something else to extract the oil to mm. spray in your crops. Well, what's easier then is to just call up your local uh, Dow, DuPont, Monsanto and say, I need something that kills these bugs. And then they just synthesize it and make it in a big vat at pennies per gallon uh, and ship it out to you. And so in the last hundred years or so, especially doing industrialized agriculture, that's really what's crop- propped up, you know, a lot of our food chain, which is to a certain extent, I'm not saying it's bad because it's necessary uh, to a certain extent because human population. There's the a trade off. Right. We, we have to be able to feed the world. And without GMOs, pesticides, fertilizers, uh, some of these synthesized fertilizers, you know, we just can't. Feed, there's not enough. We just can't feed the mouths that are in the world. Uh, but that's been adapted to cannabis as well. And so part of the the challenge then as legislation is legalizing is realizing okay what are the dangers because when it was in the black market it was more so about okay how many people are smoking the schedule one drug and putting and making sure that okay the cartels in mexico and whatever are you know are controlled and we're, we're, we're fighting drugs but now that it's legalized it's about okay what are the effects now we now care about the effects on the human body whereas it used to be just a crime issue of Okay, how many people broke the law, how many didn't. And the effects of, you know, smoking weed from, you know, the black market was really never at the top of mind. It was always about, you know, arrests and, right. and controlling. Now it's legal. Now it's like, okay, now how does that affect people's bodies? And it becomes much more, more important now for us to test for. And the primary contaminants nowadays that we look for in cannabis are the pesticides, the herbicides, uh, the testing for mycotoxins. So... The plant itself is uh, it's plant material. So if you let's say you take it, 
you harvest it, you put it in a baggie, well, it's kind of moist, and, you know, high humidity, well, then mold mm -hmm. will grow on it. So making sure that there's no it's mold, organic, yeah. so there's no mycotoxins, which are the type of toxins emitted by mold. Uh, as I alluded to, heavy metals, making sure that there's not a whole lot of arsenic or lead or cadmium, things that can cause brain damage, potentially kill you, uh, are also not in the plant itself as well. And then finally, the last bit of uh, that's really important for testing is both from a marketing standpoint and also from a regulatory standpoint is the potency. So making sure that, uh, you know, when you do grow plants, and it really came out of the medicinal side of things when legislation was really starting to pick up, uh, was around uh, when some research, scientific research, backed the benefits of cannabis. It was around, you know, CBD. Um, mm -hmm and not THC, which THC is what gets you high and gets people happy. CBD are the components in cannabis that allows, that, that purportedly does allow some form of, you know, medicinal effects. You say purportedly, do you not, you don't buy it? No, or? I do buy it. A part of me as a scientist is always going, you know, like until there's enough studies to actually prove, you know, without beyond a reasonable doubt that it's very beneficial. I don't like to say, okay, this cure, you know, because some of the claims are extremely bombastic. So there right. are folks who say it cures cancer, CBD cures cancer. I'm going like, well, in a Petri dish of cultured cancer cells, and then you took CBD and you dripped all over it and it killed the cancer. That's, that's one thing. And then, you know, then it'll slowly make, by the time it makes it to the media, to the news, it, it, it becomes would, the claim. Would it actually... So that's interesting to me when people claim that it kills cancer because, and, and I, I'm not a scientist, I could be totally wrong about this, but mm -hmm. my understanding was that as far as cancer is concerned, it doesn't really die, it just gets deactivated because we all carry cancer cells in our bodies. Yeah, and it's ultimately it's a mutation that gets out of control, right? right. Uh, and I'm not a doctor, but... You're really close. But part of it is, you know, if I think about, you know, I have a mole and it's like, that's a different type of skin cell. That's the genetic material is different, but it's not growing out of control to a point it takes over my face and prevents me from eating and so forth. And I think uh, that's sort of the differentiation. Uh, it, mm -hmm. And so for folks to say CBD cure cannabinoids cures cancer, that's when I go, okay, purportedly, okay. you know, some of the benefits that are out there. And this, some studies have shown, so certain things like in terms of anxiety, in terms of being able to go to bed, helping people sleep, those are a lot better documented. Um, well, I, I could speak for myself. I have a CBD oil mm -hmm. that I keep on my nightstand. I take a couple drops before I go to bed and it some nights better than others. Yep. I mean, I'm also knocking on 50. So when you're knocking on 50, mm -hmm. you know, as a male, you get up and you go to the bathroom at four o'clock in the morning. But <laughs> yeah. I seem to do it a little bit less. Yeah. Seem to get a little bit more rest. Yeah. Um, more than anything, you know, being able to turn off, turn yeah. off my brain a little bit easier. But right. I, for probably about a year, yeah. maybe two years now, I've, uh, I wouldn't say I'm diligent and it's an everyday thing, but if I know that I'm really, wound up and yeah. it's going to be hard to go to sleep, yeah. I'll take a couple drops of CBD and it seems to yeah. have some benefits. Right. And I'm not writing down and go, oh, how did I sleep tonight? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, that usage is probably what is actually probably the onset of testing for cannabis because if you think about legalization initially uh, from the states, so like California, one of the first states to do it, it was really about, okay, how do we make sure that people are getting CBD? but not THC, because we don't want you to get high. We want you to have the medicinal benefits, but we don't want you to get high because of, you know, the, the stigma and the laws around, you know, drug use. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was one of Gateway the- Gateway drug and all that. All of that. So one of the first tests that are, is needed is, is uh, the profiling of, you know, the, the people who grew cannabis plants, uh, of ensuring that that strain, that specific plant they grew, had CBD and not as much THC. So similar to how uh, Mendelian genetics, these cultivators initially during the heydays of legalization, they had specific strains of plants that were more prone to CBD and had very low THC. Is there an acceptable amount of THC to call it just CBD? Uh, it or has it got to be like zero? It's, you say if I'm a truck driver and I get tested mm -hmm. on a frequent basis, 
and now you start taking CBD oil because doctor, right. nutritionist, chiropractor, whoever says, you should try this and it'll help with your lower back because you're sedentary and you're sitting behind a big rig all right. day. Is that something that they can take and not test positive for? It, it You won't test positive as long as the labeling is correct on it of you know CBD versus THC. Uh, the challenge here is, uh, it, again, because it's not federally legal, every state has different regulations and that's the challenge. Some states will permit a certain very low amount of THC to be part of the CBD product. Uh, other states, it is a strict zero. Uh, or, um, Do you have an example? Like, I, can I, California have a little bit of THC in Texas? On, we could get CBD, not, but not, not on we're top, not... Not on top of my head on okay. exactly what the regulatory um, numbers are from okay. each individual states. But that's where testing really sprung out of, uh, is, is initially sort of that cannabinoid profiling Mm -hmm. And then later on, as part of that, sort of related to that, is what you just mentioned is potency, you know, how potent is it? So if you think about, uh, so for instance, certain states like the state of Alabama, where CBD is now legalized for, and certain and medicinal marijuana is legalized in the state of Alabama, but it's got to be, be below a certain level of THC because it's not meant for recreation. So that's the big key of all of this is that if it's called medicinal, marijuana. Well, the hope is that you're using it for, uh, the state is allowing it to be legal in the state for medicinal use. But then some states to ensure that, you know, Joe Schmo, who just wants to get high, isn't pretending his back's hurting to a doctor for a license. Well, the, the product just doesn't exist for you to get high because right. the state as a whole has ensured that uh, the potency has to be a certain level. And that's a big key of cannabis testing today okay. as well. Okay. And so you're so you're testing for potency. You're testing for pesticides, heavy metals, mycotoxins, mycotoxins, microbials is the other big one. Okay. Uh, so uh, like you know, remember uh, when Chipotle had the big scare with E. coli on their lettuce yeah. and so forth. Similarly with cannabis, it's it's a plant. You're not really cooking it unless you're smoking it. But because it makes it into edible products uh, as well you got to make sure that E. coli, aspergillus, or all of the nasty uh, bacteria that's out there isn't on top of it. So that's one of the final pillars of uh, safety testing uh, that's required. Um, and as we move towards further legalization and I would say mainstream adoption of the um, of the products that's out there, uh, you've become you, you also see what are labeling tests being done by producers as well. Um, and those are similar to, um, I don't know if you're into beers, craft beers or uh, anything like that. And so, whiskey. And whiskey. So when craft beers took off, everybody was making IPAs. Everybody and their I mom. Got, I got burnout. And, and, and their mom's mom was making IPAs. And I, I made an IPA. Double. For, for real. Right. Double, right. double IPA, triple IPA. And what really became a problem was how do you differentiate between one person's IPA, double IPA and another person's double IPA. So the industry came up with a measurement, the IBU, the yeah. bitter units. Similarly in cannabis now, okay, how do you start to differentiate your product from the grower down the street or the producer from down the street? And cannabis, that very pungent, skunky smell uh, is actually desired by quite a bit of consumers out there, especially in the sure. recreational space, and that's terpenes. Uh, so there's cl a class of volatile compounds that are available uh, that, that that's off-gassed by the material. So similar to IBUs, producers will now have strains of product where they say, I've got a higher terpene content than his terpene content, so you're going to get better flavor smoking my my cannabis versus his. So that's uh, becoming interesting now as we move beyond just pure safety testing and uh, regulatory testing into labeling claim testing, which is all uh, very fascinating. That is, that is. wow. Um, so in that industry, that cannabis growing, yeah. especially with it happening kind of state by state, every different legislative cycle, there's another state that pops up. Yep. And, okay, now we're legal, now we're legal. We've seen Colorado make a lot of money. We've seen California make a lot of money yep. at the state level. There's been a lot of what I would probably characterize as mom and pop growers. Yep. I've got a couple acres. Right. I could build a greenhouse. I could, you know, I've seen greenhouses in Arizona mm -hmm. where actually a couple of years ago, I helped put technology equipment into one mm -hmm. because they had to scan they had to have a communications network where they could scam from germination all the way through. But I was 
kind of fascinated looking at the company. I was like, you've got a lot of requirements for a mom and pop shop with a bank loan yep. to go and build this thing out. And, yep. you know, kind of look at it. It looks like a cash only business. Yep. One. Two, it's anybody, It just from the outside, it appears like if I had a couple acres and I yep. was in Oklahoma right now, right. I could start opening shop and start growing cannabis yep. and selling it, legally selling it. Some There's a route to market for me. There is, yeah. If I'm that person, how do I know all the things that you've been talking about that I really need to be testing for this? Because ultimately, I'm just, hey, I'm being an entrepreneur. I'm going to start growing weed and make some money because I'm tired of my $50,000 a year job, but I got two acres. Yeah, and it's the, the legislation, so one kind of congruent part of legislation from state to state is sort of the separation of the different stages of the product. So if you're a grower, mm-hmm. you can't take part in the testing. So that's, that's one of the biggest part of it. So if you're a mom and pop that's looking to start to grow, for instance, you actually, by law, are not allowed to also open a lab on site to say, I'm testing my own product for obvious reasons, sure. right? So if I spray down a, a, a nice grow with pesticides, I forget to clean it up properly, and then I send it off to my own lab and it sends too much pesticides, I'm going like, oh crap, that's going to cost me hundred grand to get rid of this crop. Right. I don't want to do that. Just go ahead and call it. You don't think about the liability <laughs> right. line that you right. cause somebody in an aneurysm. You're thinking on a PNL side of things of right. like that's a hundred thousand dollars worth of crop. So obviously the states have at least delineated there enough. So if you're mom and pop looking to start, a lot of the science behind the testing, usually the labs will handle it uh, for you. And they'll, they'll they'll walk you through the state legislations and they have to provide the certificates to you to that specific actually crop of that plant sometimes down to a granular level of the specific plant has to be tested and approved before you can before that harvest can then go to your distribution partner uh, whether it's a dispensary or if it's being extracted going off to your extraction partner to uh, have the thc and cbd be separated out from the plant matter for you okay so there is kind of this life cycle and it would take somebody making a really probably ignorant or short-sighted choice to say, you know what, I'm just going to put this on the back of a truck and sell it on the side of the road. Oh, yeah. That, no, that's a surefire way. And we've, we see it in California, actually, quite a bit. Surefire way for the state to just call the feds on you and because you're bypassing what's very important to the state. As part of the legislation, for actually the reason, let's be honest, right, money drives the world. Part of the reason that cannabis is being legalized and I would say a large part of it at the state level is really for tax income, for tax sure. revenue. So if the state gets wind that you're not paying you're, your share of what's necessary, uh, there's a very easy solution to it. And then you're the, Al Capone now. Yeah, the solution is to actually just call the feds because it's Schedule One, and the Fed and the feds will come down and they'll t- they're they're more than happy to take everything you've got uh, and run away with it. Uh, and that's that's sort of uh, what we see now. We're entering this really weird phase of cannabis legalization in this gray gray area where the federal government is not legalizing, but some states are. And a large number of uh, the majority of states now, at least medicinal, is legalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're running into this issue where because the state is regulating it so heavily and they, they should uh, being a, a product of such nature. Uh, but also the tax revenue behind it, it's taxed heavily. Um, and so the issue is a lot of growers, now you just mentioned a mom and pop, they're like, okay, well, jumping through all these regulatory hoops is costing me a lot of money. I can't even stay afloat from a right. business standpoint. Well, where does your crop go after that? Well, it just goes back on the black market. Well, now you don't have to test. Now you don't have to pay the state of California a share of whatever revenue you have to pay. And, and so it's become this weird thing again where states have over-legislated a little bit. Uh, and the governor, uh, Newscom in uh, California, has actually admitted publicly now that the cannabis legislation in California, there's a problem. That he needs too to, onerous. Yeah, he says we need to rework it because, uh, you know, it's the state of California. Everything causes cancer in California. So that's always the joke is that if you take a look at the science from state to state to state, it always points to one thing. It's that the California is extremely difficult time-consuming and expensive to meet the regulations. But some states like Montana, 
very easy to meet the regulations to the point where if I was a user, I probably wouldn't want to smoke anything out of Montana because they're so lax about, you know, what they're uh, what what the state requires up there. So until mm. the federal government gets their hand on it, you know, and I don't know when, you know, I don't know the momentum behind all of it. it it's going to be uh, quite, quite tricky navigating all these for these guys trying to uh, start businesses in different states. And it presents another problem because banking is interstate. Oh, yeah. And that's been probably one of the biggest challenges that we've seen with people wanting to start up who don't have the capital already in their pockets. If you didn't win the lottery or you didn't, you know, just uh, you didn't retire and or you didn't buy Tesla at eight dollars a share and uh, it made, made a huge and you've got tons of Why'd cash. Why'd you bring that up again? <laughs> but uh, so so because of that, it's um, the, the financing has been part of our our biggest challenge with helping customers who want to start labs up. It's the moment you mention cannabis the the your, the underwriters at the banks they just run for the hills uh, which led to the cottage industry alluded to earlier popping up that will finance cannabis specific businesses so it is the folks who made a bajillion dollars on tesla it's the folks who sold a bunch of real estate and they've just got cash sitting around they don't know what to do with it and they'll lend you because they're just lending their own cash to you yeah uh, but at very extortionate rates, you know. I, sure. I've seen interest in the low twenties to the mid thirties, wow. and they want a chunk of equity in your company before they'll lend you the money. And then I'm going like, well, is somebody going to show up with a bat at my door if I'm not very successful either? It's it's part of the sort of this cottage industry around banking, financing, um, and all cash management. Uh, and also insurance. That's the other thing that's propped up as well is cannabis specific insurance uh, companies to insure your operations, to insure your growth. So if you've got 20 acres of product worth $30 million that, you know, somebody starts a fire accidentally, you're not out $30 million, but all states not going to insure you no. for sure on that side. So no, I can't imagine they would. So you said something a few minutes ago about if you're the grower, mm -hmm. you cannot own your own lab. Yep. Can I, but if I want to diversify my risk in my income, can I take part in a lab? Can I have any kind of equity in a lab? You can, um, and the limits change by state by state. Uh, there are no states allow you to be the majority owner of a lab. Okay. Some states 30%, some states max out at 40% in terms of your ownership stake. Uh, that's allowed in a lab. So if I was going to go and start my own cannabis farm, and I had the capital yeah. to do this. I could go and put together a group and put and put in ten percent, twenty percent seed. That's no pun intended. Seed the funding of a lab that we funnel our testing through. Yep, and we see that quite a bit now, actually, as the first wave of growers have become very financially successful. Mm -hmm. uh, is actually part of that. And it's on two fronts. It is, as you mentioned, to diversify their holdings. Uh, on the second front, it's actually to improve their time to, to market. Because one of the biggest bottlenecks right now, and I, and I would argue probably the, the biggest bottleneck for a lot of producers, um, is actually the testing portion of it. It's waiting for your tests to come back from the lab. Uh, some, if you ha if you know the right lab and you're real chummy with the lab director and the people, you can get your test back in a couple of days. That's good. <clears throat> if you really aren't in the know, you don't know your labs very well and so forth, or you're working with a lab that's not very good, um, you can wait a month, two months, three months before a sample gets back. And that's product that you've already created, that you've spent all of the costs in creating the product sitting in a shelf with an expiration date. And you got to wait until because the state will not allow that to get on a shelf for sale until that's approved by mm. the lab. So you guys set up labs. Yep. Do you have to set up labs in the state where it's being grown, or can if I'm in Colorado, can I send to a lab across state lines oh, absolutely in Kansas? No. No, no, absolutely. So that's when it becomes a federal issue. Is that the moment it crosses state lines, it, it's a big, big no-no. Okay. That's we're back to interstate commerce and yep. you see the same stuff even in uh well, even in uh your typical food food sources, organic is no longer organic. Yep. Once you cross the state lines because you have to spray pesticides. Yeah, and I mean you So if you buy California grapes in Texas, 
they can't be organic because they've been sprayed. They've been sprayed, yeah. Uh, and it, it follows certain, you know, out, like similar to alcohol laws. You know, I remember a, a bar in Illinois getting busted because um, there's a beer in uh, Wisconsin called uh, Spotted Cow. That's really popular with people there. And they're only in Wisconsin. And people will literally drive up to Wisconsin by a bar bought like 100 cases of it. And, Drove it on the back of a truck over the border for Illinois and then opened up shop. And yeah. so we're selling Spotted Cow without thinking about the ramifications because it's no longer a state legislate or a state jurisdiction now. It's now an alcohol, tobacco, and firearm. It's an ATF violation. So they had their doors kicked down, not by your local police or your state police that you might know the lieutenant from. No, ATF showed up. ATF shows up with AR 15s and, and revoked your license because you bought. 100 cases of a specific beer that people wanted over state borders that they're not distributing it. And similarly for cannabis, the moment even it can be Colorado where it's fully legal if you're the age of 21 to have some on you and the local state police won't care. But if you cross state lines, it's an ATF issue. And and the federal government doesn't care at that point. Schedule one, it might as well be heroin that you're smuggling across state lines. So you have to set up the lab in the state for a Colorado grower, you have to set up the lab in Colorado. In Colorado, yeah. So you guys build the lab and operate the lab, or you sell the lab. How does that work with ABS? We do the full consulting package. So it, we don't physically build the lab itself. So we can help with selecting the lab's location. So you know, is it the right size? We can design the lab for you. Okay. Um, and ultimately, we don't run the lab, so you will still need to, and it's in every single state legislation around the laws, you will still need to hire a lab director, the head honcho that runs the lab. So we, the scientist. The scientist. So we essentially work with that person to ensure the design meets state regulations. We write the SOPs, so all of the standard operating procedures for everything from how to wash hands to how do you trim a flower bud so that it can be analyzed consistently from test to test to test because now that's what the state cares about is that if I cut off the stem of a piece of marijuana plant and I test it for potency and then I cut the bud and test it for potency, you're going to get different results. So so we have to write those standard operating procedures as well to help them get up. Critically, do you help find the human capital? If you need that scientist and that person, do you say this is what you're looking for or do you, as a consultant, do you say... Let, let us help you with the interview process because some people are going to be. We we can we can absolutely assist with that as well. Okay. So we there's certain recommendations or and you'll actually see it now even here at UT uh, at UT Dallas here they have a cannabis science program. Oh where, well, they didn't when I went to school. Yeah, there. but they they focus. That's my alma mater. Yeah, so they actually have it now. So it's like okay, if we, we if you want to learn about, but it's hard here because in tech in Texas it's, it's all legal. legal. So my assumption is in the lab they're using hops or some kind of similar uh, product when they're doing some of the experiments. Um, well, or on or the campus, hand- you can one. It's always e- it was easy to find when I was in college. <laughs> yeah. Two, it's I would imagine that they've got to be able through some kind of grant or some kind of thing. You you can order it, yeah, for research, uh, ultimately. That's Um, what I did in college, by the way. I ordered it for research. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But so, yeah, so we we can help with the staffing. Um, But where we really come in is the the instrumentation side of things. So all the tests I mentioned, the myriad of them, typically labs will need between five and seven instruments to just get started to meet the bare minimum requirement of being able to tell a grower that if you send me a product, I can get that product to the shelf. You need five to seven instruments, and sometimes that's 700 to a million dollars, just on instruments. So that's where we come in quite a bit, is that we, we have vendor relationships that help us alleviate some of the costs, and also mm-hmm. some of the headache of you, know, you having to call everybody else. N- nobody makes every single bit of the laboratory. That's the other challenge. But you turnkey the lab. Um, we turnkey the lab. So you think about you know gloves. Think about mm-hmm. a beaker. Think about safety goggles. That's a pain for somebody you're paying six figures to run your lab mm-hmm. to have to now, okay, so for the first three months, I'm actually not running your lab. For the first three months, I'm calling every single person, vendor Supply out chain there. Supply chain manager. So, yeah, to go like, okay, how much are your gloves? Okay, that's a little bit expensive. Let me call another person to see how much are their gloves. And it's like, well, you're dealing with commodities at the end of the day. Just right. just buy it from one. Uh, so that's where we come in, and we provide the hardware, the instrumentation, if you wish for us to provide it. You actually don't need us to provide it. So if you have your own relationships with vendors and so forth, 
uh, you can provide your own equipment. Um, and our biggest value add at the end of the day really is the methods, the methodology of it. And it's what breaks labs from being unprofitable to very profitable is really the methods of how you run the instruments. So everything from how are you preparing your samples to how are you loading them onto it, and then the methods that go into the instruments. So these aren't microwaves uh, where you you know pop in your uh, your hungry man and you hit five minutes and then boom pops out a, a nice fresh meal. They're not. They're, these are scientific instruments that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you have to fine tune them. And uh, I always use the analogy of it being kind of like a musical instruments around because they're both called instruments you've got to tune them properly you've got to make sure they're playing the right notes for you and that's where abs really comes in with our history of having done cannabis science in multiple states and even in california where it's the most difficult where we can implement our methods that cut costs in terms of your how, how much it costs in terms of material to prep mm -hmm. your samples uh, and then speeding up your runs so let's say I'll give you an example. Uh, the instrument that needs to run potency, for instance, it costs about sixty to eighty thousand dollars for one of these instruments that runs potency, and a bad method can take you twenty minutes to do one run. So on one plant, it'll take you twenty minutes to figure out the potency of that plant. So in an hour, you can only get done done three plants. Okay, times an eight-hour working day. Well, that's only 20 some odd plants. So even if you load it up for overnight runs, it's not that many. So you're talking 70-ish runs per day. So you as lab owner to capture revenue, that's your limit. You got a bottleneck. Potency. You got a bottleneck right there. Well, with because we've done this for so long, we know how to get the methods compressed. We know how to get that method from 20 minutes down to six minutes, down to five minutes. Okay, maybe the state of Montana is a little easier. Okay, we can shrink it down to four minutes. All of a sudden, in a six, you're increasing the velocity. In one hour, you can do fifteen. You can do fifteen runs instead, and now your revenue for that eighty thousand dollar instrument potential is a lot higher. You can run a lot more runs before you have to buy instrument number two. So especially if you've got, and which is the case for the majority of the states and our clients that we work with is they've got growers banging on their doors to go like, how can you turn this around? Can you turn this around? A lot of times they have to say yes, but it's two weeks from now. It's three weeks from now because they've just got a storage unit full of product. Uh, and then so being able to churn through that without having to go the obvious solution, which is call the OE, the vendor, the instrument maker and say, I want to buy another one but it's 80 grand versus, okay, let's just get the science right. Let's get the method right at the beginning. Is there also a backlog on the instruments themselves? Um, so that 60 to $80,000 instrument, if there's people banging on a door saying, hey, I've got a run I want you to do, I would imagine if you can't make the runs quick enough, there's also equipment on the back end that's got a bottleneck and is that is that accurate? Or? Yeah, it's mostly the issue with the bottlenecks on the equipment. It's really the acquisition costs because I think people are taken aback when they when they look into these instruments and at the cost. So the the most expensive piece of equipment it's called an LCMS. That's uh, an LCMS MS. It's for the pesticides analysis, and it it, it can be upwards of three hundred fifty four hundred thousand dollars. What does LCMS stand for? It's liquid chromatography mass spectrometer. Okay. Uh, it's a very specific type of analytical instrumentation that's widely used uh, in the industry for testing a myriad of compounds. But what's important about it is it's specific and it's very sensitive. So when you're talking, for instance, the state of California limits on pesticides, we're talking parts per trillion. So you've got to, because some pesticides are that nasty, you know, and mm -hmm. you don't want even a little bit of it because it could be the reason it kills the ladybug on the plant is because it's a neurotoxin that, that disables all the function on the, the bug and it just dies. So we don't want that in our bodies either, right? So California will set limits at parts per trillion. Well, shoot, how do you detect something that's parts per trillion? And so the importance of this piece of equipment, it's very specific, so it you can tell it, look for this pesticide and then measure how much is it. And that's the key criticality for these pieces, of in, these instruments. Um, which leads to actually, because they're precision instruments that are very hard to make, a lot of patents surround them as well, uh, very high technology type of instruments, um, their costs are astronomical to, to procure.
Do people or groups of people, companies that are starting labs mm -hmm. to fill this need in that industry, do they have a, typically do they have a history in things like LCMS and setting up labs or are they investors that, hey, here's this industry popping yeah. up, I want to put my money to work. Right. To do, to, is there people that have that kind of expertise? Because I know that you guys, yeah. when you say LCMS, and I've known all bio for years, yeah. before you ever even said one word about cannabis, yeah. LCMS was part of what y'all did. Yeah, it, 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 it's on both sides. We, we see both. Um, we've got, we, we have half of our clientele really are the folks who know labs. So it could be a doctor who owns his own lab for treatment. Uh, you know, and that's the core part what, of it. What were they doing before it was cannabis? Uh, so um, for a lot of doctors, so if you think pain management, for instance, so you're in pain, you're constantly on oxycodone, it's really for the doctor to monitor your, the usage of the drug and to make okay. sure, unfortunately, right, the, 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 part, the, the downside of prescribing some of the prescription painkillers is addiction. So ensuring that you're not spiraling into other drugs. So that, that's part of the key for a lot of these doctors because, God forbid, you know, you, you like oxy. But then the doctor's only giving you so many pills per month, you go off the street to find somebody else to give you something, and then they don't mix. And that's right. how you get the over that's how you get some of the overdoses and the deaths that we're seeing. Uh, so for these doctors, it's about monitoring that, uh, that process. So these pain management doctors, physician-owned labs, some doctors will have them uh, have the instruments to just simply turn around samples quicker. So traditionally, a doctor would have to take your pee, put it in a bag, and then that evening, FedEx picks it up, and then it gets shipped off to your usual, your lab core, your Quest, and then maybe next day, maybe the day after, you know, the doctor will get the results, and then they'll go, "Hey, Jason, like, what's up, man? Like, you shouldn't be doing this. I'm gonna cut you off." Whereas now it's about, okay, they can catch some of this quicker, and then there's all obviously the monetary side of things, doctors being able to reimburse the the cost of that test for themselves versus LabCorp and uh, Quest actually sure. owning it. And so they're can, used can to Can you it. test both in the same lab? No, so unfortunately, uh, the, the it's it's not unfortunate, it's actually fortunate, it, it's very heavily regulated. And if you think about it, the samples are very different, right? So right. for humans, you're usually doing urine, you're doing serum, or you're doing blood. And then to flip an instrument over to do extracted plant matter or oils and so forth, it's, it's very time consuming and hard to do. And like a uh, like an instrument, they 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 the they eventually has to be the machine gets used to doing something. So right, you you know you're you're playing Jimi Hendrix, and the next moment you know you you got to play Metallica. Well, let me go uh, get get my strings fiddled around and then get my amp tuned around. So similarly with these instruments, okay, I've been running human clinical samples all day. Okay, now it's like pull everything off, retune readjust my parameters to now run my cannabis stuff. Yeah. So even from just a practical standpoint, it's not very doable, but from a legislative and regulatory standpoint, uh, it's also just not, it's very frowned upon, if not just fully forbidden. Okay, okay, so, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. There's, there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah, it, and these, um, but to the original point though, the, these doctors who have ran a lab with this type of complex instrument, they're sort of a natural. So we get a lot of doctors calling about starting up a cannabis lab as sort of the next stage because they, they do see, as part of owning their own lab, they, they see the revenue. They, they see the profitability of controlling a lot of that revenue stream instead of just yeah. having it go, uh, go out. Then they say, okay, well, this is le like legalizing. Cannabis requires a lot of testing. And think about it, right? So between pesticides, mycotoxins, potency, cannabinoid profiling, residual solvents, heavy metals, microbials, you get a bill for each, every single one of those. So a grower has to pay you for that, or they can't, their, their product will never make it to market. So, so then the doctor's mind is like, okay, I'm just doing one test here, and I'm making this much money? Oh my gosh, like what about eight tests on a state and so forth? Wow. And that's assuming the sample passed. So that's not assuming, you know, a, a batch of crops comes through and it fails one of the tests. So the customer goes back to do cleanup. Then they have to pay you all over again for that test, for the passing. <sighs> that could be problematic. Yeah. Definitely expensive. Oh, yeah. No. So, I, is there anything we missed on this? Mm. I mean, that, 
it's got quite a bit to chew on. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't or think put so. any of your pipe in the smoke. Yeah. One or two. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely not as straightforward as folks think when they uh when they see yeah. legalization and licenses being handed out for dispensaries for for grows. Um, you know, they they always miss that middle part of the yeah. licenses being handed out for labs. Now, that's just not a guy with dreads and gauges in his ears selling. No, his selling the pen yeah, behind the counter. Yeah, they, they don't realize. Yeah, they don't realize the big bottleneck. It, it's right in that middle segment. And it's a big business. Yep. It's uh, so. Is there any movement from a federal perspective that you see um, right now? No, I. From what I've gathered from just the news and the uh, reading the industry a little bit, it's pretty stagnant at the moment. Obviously, there's a lot of competing interests regarding legalization. So if we think. You know, from a federal standpoint, which the federal government inks their own money, right? So from mm. a from a taxation revenue point of view, it's less appealing appealing to the federal government. So then, from that point of view, then it becomes okay. What are the driving factors? So if you think about lobbyists for tobacco, lobbyists for alcohol, the two natural competitive industries for the cannabis industry, right? So you know. Right now, if I enjoy a drink and I don't smoke, but let's say somebody who enjoys a drink and a smoke, asking them to also pick up cannabis is, you know, they're like, okay, maybe too much. So I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to smoke weed now instead. Or I'm going to, uh, instead of drinking, I'm going to have me uh, have me a smoke. So there's competition in terms of lobbying from, from those industries to continue to suppress cannabis's growth in the market. Although we see some pickup from these industries. So Philip Morris, uh, Anheuser-Busch, you know, they do invest in. I, I would think that Philip Morris, we've got fields of tobacco. Why not just plant fields of yeah, uh, stinky green wheat? I'm sure if somebody looked through the books and looked at shell company, shells of shell companies, and shells and shells and shells of shell companies um, from some of these growers, I I would not be surprised if it somehow rolled back to you no know, Philip Morris. Whereas AB InBev, they they have publics have publicly invested in certain uh, CBD drink companies, for instance. So they'll, they'll, they've bought into that. So they're a bit more out in the open about it. Um, the other side of things against legislation, it's the, uh, it's the prison industry in the US as well. So you think about uh, the, the incarceration of the, the country, a lot of it is for-profit prisons uh, at both the state and federal level. So, and what's the- You're, you're gonna have to say that again before yeah. you go deeper. What is a for-profit prison? So there are a large number of prisons in the U.S. are run privately by corporations. Not run by the state, not by county. The state. No, they are run by a corporation that charges taxpayers a, a per day rate to house an inmate. And so they have to be profitable. Taxpayer funded to a private entity Yep, and that's running a jail a jail and your business is to ensure like a hotel right is to ensure occupancy rates and well if people are not murdering each other at a high rate okay so you need to start looking for things to incarcerate people for and right now the statistics show that the vast majority of the low-level offenses that people get incarcerated for is for cannabis related crimes so you're talking an ounce on somebody maybe less, uh, that's legal, but because it's Schedule 1, again, in the eyes of the FBI, the ATF, an ounce of weed in somebody's back pocket might as well be an ounce of heroin, might as well be an ounce of crack or meth or whatever. And so in that, in that sense, right, so then these lobbyists, similarly helping fund campaigns of politicians everywhere, are very driven to ensure that cannabis stays highly illegal because if, if 70, 80% of the prison population are low level criminal cannabis offenses that are charging hundreds of dollars per day for incarceration, uh, well, the, you, you certainly aren't lobbying for cannabis to be legalized because you can't have somebody remain incarcerated or continue to arrest people for a legal product. Yeah, I'm having a pretty big WTF moment yeah, right now. It's, That's it's, new. I, I did not. Yeah ever read hear anything about a for-profit yeah, prison but when you t now that you talk about it, supply chain right yep. it's you got you got to keep you got to keep your occupancy rates up uh, man that makes so much sense but it's kind of disturbing 
So, and then banking, I would imagine that, are they sitting on the sidelines? Or yeah, they're, they... they're, they're very much so on the sidelines. Some states are some of the more aggressive banks, as if you code your lab correctly, you know, instead of saying I'm a cannabis laboratory, you are a consumer product laboratory testing for safety. And you have other businesses to show really good, uh, you know, continuity, business transactions and cash flow and so forth. They're usually willing to lend if you're very careful about it, um, about how you word what you're going to do so that they can wash themselves, uh, fully absolve themselves of any sort of knowledge of you having uh, done anything in the cannabis industry. Because ultimately, because it's cross state lines, it's, you know, it's federally regulated, the banking industry. Um, what they're afraid so what wells fargo what bank of america really is afraid of is like okay we funded a cannabis lab in oklahoma and the feds get in a wind of you know you directly finance a schedule one operation well that's a quick pretty easy way to uh for a pretty hefty fine yeah. or just have this if you're a smaller bank god forbid to have your entire um banking license just fully cut off which we've seen unique solutions to it at certain states so the montana one of the most recent states to legalize uh it's it's funny because if you think about what department in a state should be regulating cannabis product, the most obvious one is either the ag department or the health department, right? And most states is health department. Montana has been pretty smart about it. They have the Department of Revenue managing it, so a lot of the payments, the taxes, and stuff can be handled by the state, and they and they have their own means of assisting folks that are in the industry with the cash issue. That's that's really fascinating. Can I set up labs in as a company in different states? You can. Or do I have to have, create separate companies? Uh, you can set up labs in different states. You just have to register separately in each individual states for your own license in, in each individual states. And we, we see it quite a bit. So is LabCorp and Quest doing stuff like that? Or is it not people quite that big they're not people that quite that big there are cannabis specific what we would call networks now that are helping people sort of license into it um, again it's because the capital expenditure for labs is just so in intense it's that even if you take LabCorp and Quest and tell them and they let's say they actually do because but they're they're you know they're multinational they probably don't want to touch something as gray of a legality area at the moment but even if they wanted to do it Knowing that, okay, if I, if as LabCorp, if they make the decision we want to test cannabis everywhere, well, having to start up labs everywhere, it, the, the capital expenditure is huge. So we do see some of the larger lab outfits start to branch out, either opening their own labs in a different state or actually start to license their name. So some of the, some more well known Create labs. A franchise? Yeah, they start franchising, uh, you know, their processes their, and, and so forth to, and I would say ABS does something similarly, but without the, you know, the bad parts of a franchise where, you know, we're going to, you know, dig deep into your back pockets every time you run a right. test because you, you franchise for us. For us, it's more of a consulting model. We get you going. We get, we keep you happy. Come in and audit. Yeah. And come, we'll help you go through all the audit processes, help you with all of your accreditation processes, help you get your state license. Uh, those are some of the really key uh, components of getting it going. Unfortunately, it's not a, you know, we, we can't run down to the Secretary of State, form an LLC, and then start accepting samples tomorrow and, and taking payments. So we'll, ABS kind of helps with all of that in between. So if I wanted to run up to Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and I had a group of investors, yeah. how much money do I need to get started running a lab? Running a lab from scratch with nothing, uh, close to a million. You can get going. That's equipment, people, people, real estate build real out, real estate, yeah, some utilities can get you to a bare minimum lab. Probably need a generator. Yeah, all that stuff. So close to a million. If you are looking to scale to get really big, uh, you're probably looking 1.2, 1.5, so that your initial build out's a little bit bigger, and so forth. Yeah. Okay. As part of your consultancy, do y'all teach how to go and? find the growers and sell, how to market that service? Yeah, and we have our own network just as part of what we do. Uh, yeah. You know, our COO, he has been in this space for 
gosh, 20 plus years. So just through that, we have the knowledge to really help you. Okay, which conferences do you need to attend? Where do you need to go to talk to the right people to find out, you know, what to say, you know? And then the nice part right now with being a, starting a lab, it, it, the nice part is it is the bottleneck. So yeah. almost any grower you call, unless they, again, they're one of the big ones that ha that's got it in with a specific lab they like, any other growers you'll call, uh, how's how's the testing going? They'll, they'll probably tell you the same thing. It takes Nuts. freaking forever, and can't get my can't get the get my data that I need. And then the other part is consistency. They're going, one lab's telling me one thing, the other lab's telling me a different thing about the same product, wow. and, and it's like helping them answer some of those questions. So um, the space is right for folks to get into the lab, but it's also probably the least straightforward part of um, this entire industry because to grow is to grow. To, to, to bake brownies is to bake brownies uh and unfortunately the lab part is where you it's like oh okay i, I gotta call in certain states california for instance montana for instance you gotta hire phd level chemist to run your lab by law so you can't just willy-nilly it anyways at the end yeah of the day. i probably would not go out there if i had investors yeah. <laughs> uh, so oh this has been fascinating um I think um, take a little bit of break. We'll talk about the other stuff. But um, cool. thank you so much, Yaron. Absolutely. Alternative Biomedical Solutions. Yep. Um, if if you're looking to get into uh, cannabis labs, and you know, one thing that just popped into my head that occurs to me: if I with that bottleneck that exists, yeah. And without the big box retailers really jumping in because of the federal Schedule One regulations yep. and ATF and all the stuff we talked about, if I if I was really interested in starting a lab, whether I was a doctor, a private investor, or whatever, I don't want that change to happen because as soon as the interstate problem goes away, yep. you're, now you're inviting all the big players to dump, flood the market with cash, consolidate everything. Right. So now is there will eventually be that day. That day will come, and but then at the same time, you also got to take advantage of it, right? So, right. so, so some of the timing's everything. So some of this, you know, it, it takes time to get labs started. And let's be honest about big corporations. One thing they're not good at is moving quickly. Uh, so a no, lot, but of, they're good at throwing money. They're and good. just saying, yeah, I'm gonna buy this one, this one, this right. one. Right. So one. They, they can potentially buy you up, or if you get pretty good at what you're doing. Ultimately, and let's say your margins are pretty good, you, you figure it out, you've got a great staff on hand that cuts down your costs on the reagent waste. So all the chemicals that goes into doing the testing uh, and then they, they get the, the methods done really tight and they're good at fixing up the instruments and maintaining the instruments. Well, if the federal government legalizes, well, you can also call the growers across state lines and say, ship them to me. You can also call people across the country and say, ship them to me. Uh, so you'll also, so if you're a lab and you're worried about, okay, okay, this is a three-year, you know, five-year, eight-year max type of business plan, well, not necessarily because simply if the federal government legalizes, your customer base also becomes the entire U.S. And think yeah. about the, and then there's also the demand from the lagging states. So Texas here where even medicinal isn't legal yet, uh, where... Okay, it's a pretty big state with a lot of people here. So let's say we also have a lot of weed here already. I know, but not in a so. It, but the, obviously, the testing isn't there because it's not legalized. So such a big state, let's say it continues to lag and it continues to vote down legislation for it. And let's say the federal government finally says yes. Well, you've got this ginormous pent up demand here. Nobody's starting a lab tomorrow here in Dallas because it's going to take time to buy instruments, get it set up. Well, if you're over in Tulsa, Oklahoma, what's well, a Quick short hop. Well, and part yeah. of the problem here, yeah. from a legislative perspective, we talked about lobbyists yeah. at a national level. Yeah, we get a lot of lobbyists here, even for horse racing. We have yeah. racetracks, yeah. but they're not the high-end racetracks. Right. I forget what the exact, whether it's you know, stage one or stage two, or mm. there's a specific name for racetracks, but. You still have to see the better horses. Yeah. You still have to go out of state. Go out of state. Yeah. We, it, you go one mile in Oklahoma and now you have casinos. Right. We don't have casinos here. And, you know, they're very much lobbying with our legislators here. To, right. Because they want us to drive from Dallas. It's just one hour, one hour and a half drive yeah. to 
Choctaw Casino right. or in Durant, Oklahoma. So yep. yeah, there's a lot of forces at play. Yep. So I, I, because of that, I think it'll take quite a while here, but for sure. Yeah. We might be the last. <laughs> yeah, there's a chance of it. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So I said we were going to take a break. I lied because that thing popped into my head. But uh, you're on. Thank you for being on this one. Yep. Learn a lot about cannabis, more than what I learned in college. Um, so we'll come back and talk about PFOS. Sounds great.